1: Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to The Future of Entrepreneurship, of Prof. G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Just a quick note, this series deals with sexual assault. So please keep that in mind when you decide when and where to listen. As in previous episodes, we've changed the names and voices of some of the people that we've interviewed to protect their identities. This is Cover Story from New York Magazine, Season One Power Trip. I'm Io Tillett Wright. Lily and Dave love this song called House Full of Shit. What are we going to do with all this shit? The lyrics are, what are we going to do with all this shit? We're going to need a second hallway. And that's basically how they feel. Ever since they started digging into the underbelly of psychedelics, and especially since we started dropping episodes... Lily and Dave have been inundated by stories of all kinds of abuses by psychedelic guides.
3: Oh, look at this.
2: They need a second hallway. It's like we're sitting here on like a mountain of...
4: Evidence.
2: ...that shed light on what's going on. Some of the stories Lily and Dave are discovering have nothing to do with sexual abuse.
5: We started looking into a lawsuit against Aharon that we found quite intriguing. It accused him of a breach of confidentiality.
2: It never made it to court, but...
5: That lawsuit led us to two women.
2: And the stories of these two women get to the heart of something. A dynamic that shows up in a lot of different ways between guides and their clients. Where the client sees the guide as a kind of deity. And the guide, in turn, gets kind of high on power.
3: This is Bodie. (laughs) Hi, Kitty. Hi, (laughs) Bug. What do you want? He's making a little snory sound.
5: First, I want to tell you about
3: Claire.: No last name, I think. yeah, just Claire.
5: Claire was a dance teacher, and for her, this story starts in about 2005. She was living up in the San Francisco Bay Area, not far from where Francoise and her own live. Claire was a victim of child sexual abuse, and she had started dating a man who had his own stuff kind of going on.:
3: A trauma survivor.
5: And for a while, the relationship was going really well. They actually moved in together.
3: He had told me that he was working with a therapist who was doing plant medicine with him.
5: So he was working with Francoise doing psychedelic therapy. And at first, it was going really well. And Claire also tried it. You know, I felt a kindred spirit. But one day her partner comes back from a journey with Francoise and she says that he had just suddenly
3: completely lost touch with reality. He came back just like eyes wide open and totally like he'd experienced God. He told me that he had taken ketamine. He was so fragile that he didn't have any sense of his own ability to care for himself it's like he was just, he was a shell. He would leave for work in the morning, but apparently was sitting somewhere in his car. He was fired from his job. He was holed up in a, a bedroom, a second bedroom in the house. He had a tempur mattress. And I found, when I was changing the bed one day, I found all these um, s- knife marks in it. And he had apparently been taking a butcher knife out of the kitchen and stabbing this mattress when he was angry. Claire talks about how she would call on Francoise for help. I would call her and say, You know, he's not okay. What do I, you know, what do I do? Well, can you get him here? I don't think that she was doing anything purposefully harmful. My impression is is that it was more of a backtracking, trying to fix a mistake.
5: Ultimately, this whole thing was really painful for
3: Claire because this man she really cared about was just getting more and more distraught. I found this series of emails where I had said, I don't understand what happened. All these things happened after you did that ketamine journey with Francois.
5: All that time, Claire said she didn't really blame Francois. And then about five years later, Claire met another woman who was going through a hard time with her husband. Hey. Hi. So we're going to call her Catherine. And her then-husband was also seeing Aharon for psychedelic therapy. And Catherine told me that, at first, it seemed like Aharon was really helpful. It was the first time that her husband had spoken about some really hard things.
6: Aharon said, you know, you have to tell your wife what's going on.
5: There were some really rough revelations in the mix, and I don't want or need to talk about those publicly, but suffice it to say that it's stuff that would rock most marriages. As they were trying to work through it, Catherine says that he was going on journeys every weekend. And she describes him as starting to become untethered from his family, from his job, from his responsibilities. And her friend Claire remembers him seeming delusional. Catherine was thinking about leaving him.
6: I I think we need to get a divorce and we can do it peacefully. She
5: says that Aharon had really encouraged them to stay together. He told them that he could help. So Catherine and her husband both kept doing journeys with Aharon. They spent social time with Aharon and Francoise and their community. And Catherine remembers there was this one group journey with lots of different drugs. And when she told me about it, I thought, this really sounds like a roquette session. So like in the middle of it, while she's already
6: high. Somebody came around and said, do you want the LSD? And I said, no. And then they went back to Aron, and Aron says, she's taking the LSD. And uh, the person came back to me and says, Aron says you're taking the LSD. And I was so high, I was like, okay, I'm taking the LSD. Because Aron's in charge. And he'd be like, no, you need this. You know, he's directing things.
5: Can I ask, like, how the ketamine came about?
6: Yeah, the idea was, um, you need to break through. And ketamine is the next level. Like the mushrooms will show you certain things, but if you really need to break out of your patterns, ketamine's the next step. Some people need a higher dose because their ego is so entrenched and they're so guarded.
5: Looking back, Catherine says this was a terrible idea.
6: His ego wasn't strong.
5: At one point, Catherine told us that Aharon sent her to see a psychiatrist in San Francisco. But then that psychiatrist actually cautioned her against working with Aharon and Francoise. So we reached out and spoke to him, and he said that he had warned her about their inappropriate use of psychedelic drugs with people who had mental health issues. He told us that he'd actually filed a complaint with the California Medical Board.
6: I think they take very vulnerable people and people whose lives are kind of going off the rails. And... Pull them into this fantasy that we'll build this community together and we'll cure you and you'll be like us. Do they deliver on that? They do not deliver (laughs) on that. Catherine
5: said that she could see her husband was becoming obsessed with Aharon. And she even tried to warn Aharon about it.
6: I said he's obsessed with you. You know, he sees you as like a, a godlike figure. It's out of proportion. You know, if somebody warned me as a professional, I'd be like, oh, shit, I'm in too deep. And I thought he would say, oh, this isn't right. But he didn't.
5: I think there's a thing that happens with drugs, especially if you've, you're seeing like a shaman or guide or whatever, where you... Displace some of the awe and the wonder of the drug experience onto the person who gave you the drug. But it's also like such a power trip when somebody starts, you know, relishing in how wonderful you are and how powerful you are. And, you know, playing shaman seems like, from what I can tell, it seems like it's pretty intoxicating for people. I think some of them feel like a god. And I sort of wish that I could just like quietly approach the expanding balloon of their grandiosity with a little needle and just pop it, (laughs) you know? When Catherine finally manages to move out and file for divorce, things get even worse, if you can imagine. Even just talking about this period in her life, it's really clear to me that it's really hard for her. Catherine was going to court to divorce him and protect her family. And there comes a point in this ongoing battle where Catherine's husband at the time is trying to get the judge to prevent her from seeing their kids. And Aharon writes a letter in support. Luckily, the judge throws out the request within a couple days. And then it later dawns on Catherine that Aharon's letter was
6: not allowed. You can't just write something unsolicited to the courts without my consent. So that's the
5: battle that led us to Catherine. She went on to file a complaint with the state of California, and they fined Aharon $2,500.
6: They talked to him. He was very sorry. He was very repentant. He was admitted that he did not have a release of information. Basically, what's
5: happening here is Aharon is answering the request of a client who seems pretty unstable, can't hold down a job, seems to worship him, and supporting this man's efforts to stop Catherine from seeing her family. When they told you he was sorry and repentant,
6: how did that... Oh, it just pissed me off. It just really pissed me off.
2: Oh, my God. I'm so disturbed.
5: Hey, I'm wearing my pants that I got that made me think of you. They're like they're like cargo-y pants. <laughs> I saw them in the thing, and I was like, these kind of remind me of the pants I wear sometimes, mm. and they look really comfortable, and they're cotton, and I like cotton. <laughs> yeah, maybe.
6: Here, look, look.
2: Yeah. 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 Yep. Mm hmm. Look like you're going to go build something.
5: Hello, Francoise.
4: Hi, Lily. (laughs) Hi. How are you?
5: Yeah, I'm good. How are you?
2: Wait, 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 wait.
5: Yes, that is me talking to Francoise. It happened like late summer of this year. Yeah. I went ahead and started the recording because I was just so curious to get right into it. Yes. Um, After I started talking to Catherine and also reaching out to other people um, that she had put me in touch with, all of a sudden I get this email from Francoise. It says, Hello, Lily. It has been ages. I hope you are doing very well in all your endeavors. I would love to hear. Smiley face emoji with little blushy cheeks. I wanted to reach out since someone I know informed me that you were concerned about the therapeutic relationship Aharon Grossbard had with his clients. You may not be aware of this, but Aharon is my husband and is impeccable in his sexual boundaries with his clients.
2: In the note, Françoise refers to the moment years ago when Lily tried and failed to get some of the leaders of the psychedelic movement to back her in speaking out about abuses. Françoise calls it, quote, the community rejection. In the next sentence, Françoise says she's currently aware of clients with, quote, personal challenges, attempting to, quote, make them look bad and calls it absurd.
5: Take care, Françoise. So a few weeks later, we get on a call and I told her that, yes, here I am again. Well, you'd written to me and I was so interested. I asked her about the lawsuit from 20 years ago where a client accused her of sexual contact and a bunch of other stuff over a several year period and saw that it was settled in mediation. Mm -hmm. Um, I've also talked to people who were around at that time. Who she denied to me that she did anything wrong.
4: The people you talk to may have had some, uh, you know, um, anger towards me or may have heard a part of the story on an angle of the story or, you know, maybe want to, you know, I don't know, tarnish my name or something. So it's a long situation and I was fine with what, what I did. I also told her that
5: I was hearing other similar stories about her and Aharon. So I've heard a range of allegations against you and
4: your group and Aharon. Well, you know, here's a, here's a, something that I've discussed a lot because I've discussed that a lot with people in my community and outside the community even, or not in my direct community. And the language I'm hearing is that the more you are visible, the more people will find ways to put you down. You know, they'll find stories. they are st- and they are stories, situations that and then
5: good. eventually, I went all in so at this point, I've heard about practitioners in your community who are engaged in sexual activity with clients and dual relationships and touch without permission, fostering dependence, emotional manipulation, mind control. Um, A few folks have used the phrase breaking people, and um, some people have said that you and Aharon have condoned and encouraged behavior that caused them harm. So I'm curious to know what you and Aharon think is going on here.
4: Well, um, look, um, I, I don't mean to avoid the thing, but I have a client waiting at 1130, so just...
5: She'd already told me that she only had half an hour but she did give me a little more time. Again,
4: I don't know who you're talking to or with, you know, I'm sorry, but you know, I, this is not my language. This is not my language, Lily. I mean, you know, we have said to people that if you have a training in sex therapy and you are licensed to have a contract with a client in a very clear dialogue and consent that is establishing the, um, the exploration of sexual healing, again, within the context of consent, contract, and professional training, but anything like this that you're describing is absolutely not what what I what I say or support. So I cannot say you hear what you hear, but this is not my form of work.
5: Yeah, yeah, I guess that's not what I've heard.
2: Since Lily and Francoise had this conversation, we've reached out to Francoise and Aharon several times, laying out all the details of what we've learned and asking for a response. Francoise answered that she did not want to participate in what she called sensational and defamatory journalism.
5: When I asked her about her community and her training program and how they deal with guides and therapists harming clients,
4: she said this. Well... We we expect the guides to um, to uh, come to uh, honesty, and we are listening to the, the, both the clients and the guide. I mean, we're not doubting the client.
5: Basically, she said we expect guides to tell
4: the truth, but we want the guide to, for the sake of their own healing and their own integrity, to come to tell the truth and and as part of the healing to tell the truth.
5: My first thought when I heard that was, how do you know the guide knows the truth? And if they do, how do you know they're going to tell it to you? It's like she has this supreme confidence in the integrity of guides. And I think this opens up something that we really need to talk about in this community, which is the idea that ethics comes from within. If you want to figure out if something is okay or not, you're supposed to look inside yourself for the answer. Is this hug okay? Or is this touch okay? This reminds me of a story that we heard from a fellow named Sergio Rodriguez Castillo. Sergio is one of the teachers with the Center for Consciousness Medicine, and he's trained by Francoise Naharon. So he has this story that he uses as an example of a good way for a guide and a client to work together to sort of figure out if something that happened in a session was okay and how they might wanna proceed from there. So he's in a session with a guide and-
7: I'm Kind of a, in a regressed child, very vulnerable position. And he comes uh, and, and, and lies next to me behind and he just hugs me, right? and it was really really beautiful and i felt love and i felt held and it was like oh so so much, so much love but my own childhood wounding of being taken advantage over came back online the next day so i said how could he do this to me he took advantage nothing happened let me be very clear fully clothed nothing improper nothing sexual happened he just hugged me but that triggered some of my own uh trauma, right? So I, I went to confront him. I said, how could you do this to me? You were the guide. I was like a child. I was vulnerable. I was in an state. You should have known better that this was not the right thing to do. So the first thing that he does is, well, let me check with myself. Do I feel like I did something wrong? And he said, you know what? I cannot find that energy. I cannot find that energy within me but let me hear more about what, what happened to you. And then I kept telling him, and I started crying. I said, this happened, and it was horrible, da-da-da-da. And then he said, you know, Sergio, I can see how what I did could have been interpreted that way. I'm sorry. And, and tell me what you need to, to, to feel better. In that case, that was enough.
5: And then later, in like a subsequent psychedelic session, they had decided to like explore that kind of edge together.
7: Some other time, uh, where I was in the same place, and he felt that I could need some holding, he came to me and said, Sergio, would it be okay if I hold you? And I said, yes. But remember, I said yes the first time too. She said, are you sure? Yes. Let me tell you ahead of time what I'm going to do. He said, "Okay, if I put my arm around you." "Yes." "How does that feel?" "Feels a little scary." "Okay, let me remove my arm." "Okay, try again." "How does that feel?" <sighs> "Okay, it feels good." "Are you sure? I can take I can take it away." if you want me to. No, this feels good. I, I feel safe. Okay, you, you, you get the point. So very, very slowly, it's like exposure therapy in a way. Very, very slowly, I'm beginning to heal the wound that if we don't go there, it's never going to heal. And what what expanded state of consciousness allow you is to have that possibility to, to go to those places more easily. From
5: Sergio's perspective, This was a healing experience. The way that Sergio saw it, it's like his guide was asking him for consent and checking in with him about it every step of the way and was open to hearing about what's working and what's not working. So to Sergio, the system worked. But when I hear this story, it makes me feel quite worried and unsettled. Like, I see way too much room for error. I think that there's an idea packed in here of, like, uh, being in the moment as the process unfolds and we respond together to the thing that arises in the space and do what we feel needs to be done in the moment But there's not really clear rules about what's okay and what's not. So you're supposed to just sort of negotiate that on the fly with this person who's in an altered state. Or if they're not in an altered state, they have been recently and they're still pretty suggestible. What if your guide doesn't have empathy? What if your guide got really bad training? What if your guides...
2: By and large, people who are causing harm... I feel like they rarely as- perceive that they are causing harm. Or care. Or care.
5: Yeah. You know, and like the incentive to do the thing they say, because the promise is that you're not going to be in pain anymore if you do, is such a strong incentive. I, I Here is the thing I'm telling you is going to make it so you aren't hurting anymore. I can see it. I know it. Just trust me. Just trust me. Like right now, it's a bit of a bonanza out there. There's a whole bunch of people that are suddenly like, ooh, psychedelics, you know, they're really excited about this thing that's gotten so much buzz as a miracle cure. And they don't have a real idea of the risks. They don't really have a, a real idea of what the rules are supposed to be. They're, they're sort of thinking about like, well, this is kind of a, a radical new treatment anyway. Maybe the rules don't apply. If we talk about ethics as something that really comes from within, we lose sight of the very well-established ethical standards determined over many years by professional communities which exist to protect the client.
2: We'll be right back.
1: You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is Cover Story from New York Magazine.
5: We have a couple more stories to tell you. They're pretty fucking bad, but...
2: um, This sucks.
5: Yeah, it does suck. But I think that we have to have this conversation because... There's more and more people getting into psychedelics every day. And a lot of guides out there have either been trained by Francoise Naharon or by people very much like them with this idea that boundaries are something you can figure out on the fly and that if you really want to heal, you have to surrender. And I think these last couple of cases really take you inside what it might feel like To be asked to surrender to things that you should just never be asked to surrender to. So I know that you remember Susan. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, wait, who's Susan? Eyal Gorin's client. At some point, she found out about this other woman who was working with AL and she wanted to alert
3: her. I sent her an email and said, hey... I noticed you you dropped out of the training. I know that you worked with Aol and I wanted to say I worked with Aol.
5: We're going to call this woman Lauren. And at first, Lauren says that Aol actually warned her that Susan was unstable and out to get him. So it took her a year to answer Susan. Basically, she just says, "Hey, Susan, if you're open to it, I wanted to talk to you about A. L. slash the medicine." Community. So then they started having a conversation, and the two of them talked about some of the other parallels in their experiences. He would talk to me about her,
3: and she was like, "Yeah, he talked to me about you all the time." He- He told her that I was borderline and had borderline personality disorder and I was
8: dangerous and she should stay away from me.
2: I want to note here that our most recent communication from ALS lawyer says Mr. Gorin denies any allegations of wrongdoing and has no further comment.
5: It was actually just a couple of weeks ago that Lauren agreed to let us summarize some of what she says happened to her. She saw AOL for three years, much longer than Susan, and he really pushed it further with her. Mm. So it was her first experience of therapy. And she told us that just having someone ask her how she was and say, tell me more, made her feel really cared for. He was really validating and supportive. She describes him as very attuned to her emotions And she started to trust him, even though it was therapy. So she didn't know anything about him. It was just the way he was engaging with her felt good.
2: Was it regular therapy or psychedelic therapy?
5: It was just regular, good old-fashioned psychotherapy. Okay. She also said in the beginning, the boundaries felt quite clear. He did make a a hugging gesture to her once at the end of a session, and she remembers telling him, I don't do hugs, and he said something like, we're going to fix that. He told her that he's also an expert in psychedelic therapy and that he thinks she's an ideal candidate. It's a year's worth of therapy in one session kind of idea. Eventually, she does MDMA with him, and at first, the sessions were really helpful, but as things progressed and as they started doing psilocybin therapy, she did not like it. She was saying, I don't think this is the drug for me. It's just difficult. It feels like a bad trip. So here's one of the places where Lauren says that the things they all did to her are really parallel to Susan and other people that we've talked to. She says that whenever she questioned things, he told her she needed to surrender and trust and let go of control and that it was her ego getting in the way. She says that he also told her, You need to open yourself up and allow yourself to receive love. Very much like Susan, actually, kind of identical to Susan. Ayal told Lauren about the training with Françoise Naharon and that there might be one last spot for her and that they would be like her family. And she did join.
2: If you do what I say, I can maybe get you this one last spot.
5: Yeah. But after two training sessions, she decided that this was not for her. The psychedelic therapy continued. And Lauren says that she was believing Ayal about her resistance and her ego And she talked about how she had this feeling that there was always a breakthrough just around the next corner, just over the horizon. So one evening after an MDMA session, she told us that he usually had food for her. And then this evening he did not. So he took her out to get food. And suddenly there they are sitting at a restaurant on a patio next to a fountain and She realizes that this feels like a date. And then the next therapy session, a few days later, Lauren says that he told her he was in love with her. Oh, what? And that he pursued her from there.
2: While he was still her therapist?
5: She says he told her in her therapy session.
2: Dude, come on.
5: And the thing is... Lauren told us that at this point, Ayal had become a really central person in her life as her therapist. She was worried that she was going to lose that. And it seemed like the only way that she could keep what was feeling helpful and hopeful to her about this whole situation was to kind of follow his lead. So they started seeing each other outside of therapy while they were still doing therapy.
2: Wait, seeing each other, seeing each other?
5: Taking walks, getting coffee... And Lauren says that he continued to push her to stop resisting. Like, even little things. So, it's like, do you want coffee? Oh, you don't want coffee? Yes, you do. What? Yeah. So, eventually, there's an evening where there's an attempt at physical intimacy, which I'm not going to go into at Lauren's request. That's when Lauren says that she started pushing back. She says she told him she didn't want a relationship and that he shouldn't have shared his feelings with her.
2: Lauren has actually filed a complaint with the regulatory agency in California that governs therapists. She included five statements from people she was talking to as all this was happening. One colleague described what she heard from Lauren like this. Quote, Eyal used private sensitive information he had gained from their work together to invalidate and pathologize Lauren's experience, demanding that she open herself to love with him. The colleague continued, and this is also a quote, I remember Lauren telling me that Ayal had said to her, I didn't realize you were only strong because you had been leaning on me.
5: He would be like, you're fragile or you're borderline. And if that didn't work, it was like, we're meant to be. Lauren told us that she was trying to hold they all accountable in whatever ways that she could because she was wondering, how could you have taken away this therapy and pursued a relationship with me instead? And by the time she's asking that question, she's really distraught. It was like she'd had this really clear vision for where all these things were going and where this was supposed to be taking her. But after what he had done, she told us that it felt like she couldn't trust the one person she had been trusting for years. And she, she told us that she didn't feel like she could trust herself either. She says that Eyal told her that she was, uh, that this was all about the care she'd never gotten from her parents Which really messed with her mind. Because of all the years that they'd been doing therapy and psychedelic journeys together, she said it felt like he had a blueprint of her internal world that he could just exploit whenever he wanted.
0: Jesus Christ.
5: And in another conversation, she described it like this. She said Ayal used the psychedelics like a Trojan horse to get into her psyche.
2: The psychedelics are the perfect thing to Trojan horse into someone's vulnerability.
5: And just in case that you're thinking this is an AL problem, for the last year I've been talking to a woman on the opposite coast from Lauren and working with another therapist who said his teachers were also Francoise and Aharon. And there was the pattern again. You have to surrender. You have to trust. While she was on the psychedelics, he was holding her and spooning her and massaging her glutes and singing songs to her while wrapping his body around hers. One of the ways that he touched her was to trace with one finger circles around her tailbone and anus. I've heard firsthand allegations against five men trained by Francoise Naharon. And I talked to a sixth man that they trained who told me that he'd had sex with a woman while she was on LSD. All of these stories are stories of resistance. Like, there's a moment for these people where they start to push back or they start to say, I'm not okay with this, or they make a complaint or they try to hold somebody accountable. And I think that's really important to recognize too, because like, as you once said, it's so hard to say no, even once. And in these cases, it's like these people are trying to say no multiple times in some instances and the people that they're saying no to just keep pushing,
2: We're going to come back to that in a later episode.
5: There's one last person I want you to meet. Okay, hi. Hi. Her story has really stuck with me because what happened to her was pretty extreme. How's it going? Good. How are you? I really want to tell you how Francoise responded when this woman tried to report it to her. I'm going to turn my heater up just a little bit, but I'm I'm still here. I can still hear you. Okay, I'll be here. We're going to call this woman Connie. You're so sweet. So, a few years ago, Connie scheduled a visit with a psychedelic guide who also does massage and sexual healing. And she says that when he came around to her place for a session, they had an explicit conversation about boundaries.
2: Someone from an organization in California that's advocating for this kind of work told us that one, they don't condone doing sexual healing on drugs, and two, consent around touch should be in writing— and it should never be changed on the fly.
8: Connie says that she told the therapist she did not want her G-spot touched. And I remember specifically saying, I don't think I want that or need that. But it was a massage, so her clothes were off. And she took edibles and uh, mushrooms. An hour into the session, he's pushing and saying, oh, this is what you need. And I'm altered. So I was feeling very open. Anyway, so then of course I'm like getting touched in that area, and um, I'm receiving all these messages. I'm I'm seeing like owls fly through, and and suddenly then I'm um, in this situation where this person is on top of me and inside of me. I don't remember when they entered, and there was definitely no request. Essentially, I had just been raped. Right? I mean, essentially, I had just been raped. And yet, it was like a person that I had invited into my home.
5: It's her reaction that really struck me in the gut. Because on the one hand, Connie has been very clear about how much this hurt
8: her. Let me be really clear that what happened, I think, is absolutely, totally wrong. And there's a big part of me that wishes that, like, in that moment, I, I wish I had, like, fucking called the police right then or, you know, done something. Because I think that person should absolutely had been arrested and never seen a client again. I don't care if, you, if some voice in your head or your spirit guide says, oh, yes, penetrate this person right now. Have you heard people say that before? Yes. You've heard people talk about how
5: they are being guided or instructed by some inner voice to engage in what in the 3D world we could call sexual misconduct or rape or. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Connie is really clear that this guy who came to her house was in the wrong. But there's something that she has said consistently that really struck me it's that she somehow brought this experience on herself. The words she uses to describe it is that she called it in. And when she said that, I was like, oh, my God, there it is. This is the same thing that people told me after T raped me. And what Connie did with her thoughts and
8: feelings at the time was to try to help the guy who had hurt her. This is so embarrassing, but I actually thought I had to heal this guy.
5: She says it wasn't until she recommended him to other women and then two of them told her that he had violated them that she realized
8: the mistake that she'd made. I think at least 3 women at this point had I felt like a co-abuser because because I had been recommending this person. When one of them came to me and and told me that what happened, I Absolute, like, I had never felt that level of rage. Then she sprung into action. That was when I wrote the letter to
5: say this happened. She wrote a letter to the practitioner's teacher, Francoise Borzat.
2: Francoise was the guy's teacher?
5: Yeah. And in a few-page-long email, she communicated to Francoise that this man had sexually transgressed against multiple women... And that she was really worried about this man's behavior as well as his well-being. Oh, my God. And then eight days go by and there's no response. Mm. And she starts to get pretty scared because like we've already heard in this community and this
8: circle of people, it's really hard to stand up and talk about these issues. I said, "Okay, well, maybe it's not as bad as I thought. Sorry. And I kind of ran away a little bit please forgive me. Forget what I said. Everything's fine. What I got was she's like, oh, great. Thank
5: you. Here's what the response from Francoise said. Thanks for following up and reassuring us. It was a bit startling to receive such alarming news in such a dramatic way. I just hope this manner of speech did not contaminate this man, regardless of what has to be confronted, supported, and learned for him.
2: Wow.
8: I was just shocked. It's like so hard to talk about.
5: You are doing a fantastic job. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. Okay. It's hard. I got so much time for Connie. I think one of the things I really appreciate is her willingness to be vulnerable with me and to
8: grapple with this idea of calling it in. Because it's one of the new ager, ridiculous, like, toxic prescriptions, right? So you called that in.
5: I guess I'm just thinking about how the idea that we did call it in, like, I'm. I get worried that that just excuses abuse. Uh,
8: I'm wondering what you think of that idea. I think I think there's a lot of truth to that. You know, I guess for me, I know as a woman, I will never call in like rape you know?
5: That's what she told me in that interview. And she was really clear about it. But the last couple of times that I've spoken to her, she's told me again that she knows she called
8: this experience in. My soul was calling in something to break me. I think that's what happens. My soul was calling in something to break me.
2: This past fall, while Lily and Dave were frantically investigating and forming almost like a team of people who wanted to come forward with their stories, one of the people they'd been talking to, Will Hall, very bravely stepped into the public eye on his own. He published a piece called Ending the Silence Around Psychedelic Therapy Abuse on madinamerica.com. Shortly thereafter, other pieces covering the allegations started popping up and suffice it to say it really shook the tree
1: i started to get so many emails from people
2: do
5: you have an estimate of how many emails you've gotten from people with like
1: oh yeah it's easily 40 i have a i have a document where i've been putting all the emails and it's now more than 70 pages that document
5: this whole conversation has really blown up in some ways Since Will published his article, Francoise and Aharon's daughter is now running the above ground training organization that they all started together. Her father has been officially removed from any role in it. And both of her parents, Francoise and Aharon, are no longer listed on the website as co-founders. And the organization has put out a statement saying there is now an independent investigation into allegations against
2: Aharon. In the last few weeks, both Aharon and Francoise sent out emails to a list of people who've trained with them. Aharon starts out acknowledging people's, quote, hurt, pain, confusion, and the disappointment in me and my leadership role. Then he writes, quote, while my intentions have always been moral and caring, I wholeheartedly recognize that at times I have not been able to adequately recognize the impact they have had on some of the people I worked with. He talks about intentions and transference and power dynamics and says, quote, I'm committed to keep on looking inside and understand more about my shadow and ignorance. And he says he's seeing a new, quote, wiser elder psychotherapist outside our community. More recently, Francoise also sent an email to the group. She calls what's happening an implosion And she writes that she's feeling a lot of pain, disconnection, and sadness. She says that she's getting the support that she needs to go through all this and, quote, has gained insight into the source of her own wounding. Then she continues, quote, I also know that other allegations are floating around, bringing doubts in everyone's mind, and there is not much I feel I need to speak about as I reserve myself the right to some privacy in regards to my own choices, which are not related to my professional life. Towards the end, she adds, quote, I trust everyone's intuition to mindfully move forward in a healing direction.
5: The thing that makes me hopeful is that we're hearing more and more every day from people who say they've experienced harm or witnessed harm, and they're feeling emboldened to speak up about what's happened to them. And There's a statement that was published online. It's like an open letter. It was signed by a lot of people in the community, and it's the beginning of a conversation. People are taking a stand and trying to say, this is a thing that is wrong. And here's some ideas about how we might mitigate this problem in our community going forward. Let's put together an independent ethics council and give people places where they can report harm. Let's think about how we investigate these sorts of things and take a restorative justice approach to this kind of work. I'm always on the lookout for, you know, is this genuine or is this reputation management? Is this just another way to try to handle this whole thing in-house and paper it all over? The thing that I would hope would be at the center of change like that would be the voices and the perspectives of the people who've been harmed.
2: So what's next? Some people will tell you that when this underground therapy goes mainstream, all this shit will get worked out. The creepy guides, the bad ideas, all of it. Because if big-name universities are involved, and real research labs, and publicly traded companies, then surely all these power-trippy problems will go away. Right? Cover Story will be back in 2022. Cover Story is a production of New York Magazine. Power Trip is co created, produced, and reported by David Nichols and Lily K. Ross. Hosted and produced by me, IO Tillett Wright. Our senior producers are Marianne McCune and Whitney Jones. Also produced by Taka Zen and Liza Yeager. Our executive producer and editor is Hannah Rosen. Sound design and scoring by Mike Cruz, Brandon McFarland, and Sharif Youssef, who also engineered the show. Cover Story's theme music is by Santigold. More music by Lynx Demuth and John Ellis. Fact-checking by Brutina Cheng and Ted Hart. Crystal Finn is the voice of Susan. Harmony Stemple is the voice of Connie. And Karen Racanelli is the voice of Catherine. Special thanks to legal minds Alyssa Cohen and Samantha Mason, and also to the band Night Lunch for the use of the song House Full of Shit. Power Trip is also produced with Symposia, a non watchdog group. For a deeper dive into some of these issues, visit symposia.com slash powertrip, which is P-S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-A.
5: If anyone listening to this podcast has stories or insights or comments that you want to share— Please do you can write to us at tips at symposia.com
2: Also Symposia is a nonprofit organization and we need your support You can support us on patreon or with a one-time donation at symposia.com/ donate
1: You can find it on the PropG pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work